We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call them and leave a message right now. They will get back to you at 905-529-7165. Check out their website as well, andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, .com. You can listen to old shows there and even ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Good morning, gentlemen. Good, Good to see morning. you. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, passing down your vacation property. It's yes. almost that time of year. Well, I know people are thinking about opening, opening up their up cottages. Mm-hmm. And I had a, a meeting this week with a client who was looking to do a renovation on the cottage. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a kitchen upgrade, some new wiring, basically 25 grand yeah. done pretty yeah. quickly. And uh, But it started a whole discussion about how that property has evolved over time. And of course, for so many people, they have a place in the city mm-hmm. and then they have a vacation property or a place in the country, cottage, whatever it is. And for most families, the importance of preserving that family cottage becomes a pretty big priority, yeah. right? And it, it is the key kind of goal for many, many people that own a vacation property or a cottage and trying to figure out how to get their children or pass it on to their children in the most efficient way becomes critical. Mm-hmm. Um, and recently, I guess, but in the first, the first thing to understand is that tax liability at the time of death. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a key one because a lot of people don't always recognize that, that when you die, there's what's called a deemed disposition. So even though you haven't, you haven't sold the cottage, you're deemed to have sold the cottage when you die. And at that point is when the capital gains tax has to be paid on the cottage. Today, you know, capital gains tax, you get half of it is is tax and half mm-hmm. of it's tax-free. There's lots of talk about the rules changing on that and that uh, perhaps that's going to increase in the future. So imagine in a world where, you know, 75% of the, of the gain is taxable or 100% of the gain is taxable. Mm-hmm. What would that look like in terms of a tax liability? But based on the rules today, half of the gain is taxable and half the gain is tax-free. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so... That's uh, And then understanding how much tax is owing on that becomes kind of part of the key as well. So let's just run a quick example. If you had a $100,000 property that you bought years ago, uh, at, at death it's worth 500000 You have a $400,000 gain on that property. You have half of it tax-free, 200000 200 is taxed. And if we just take uh, an easy 50% tax bracket, the highest tax bracket, which is probably more like 53% yeah. mm-hmm. in Ontario now, but uh, about uh, $100,000 is going to be taxed, uh, income tax mm-hmm. to transfer the property. So where the problems arise then is if your estate doesn't have $100,000 available to pay that tax, then where does the money come from? And quite often, uh, in many cases, we see properties have to be sold. Mm -hmm. So, and that defeats the whole purpose of what we're trying to achieve, right? So one, one solution, which is straightforward, is if you don't have enough in the in your estate to be able to pay the tax on your vacation property or cottage property, then you can consider life insurance. Now with life insurance, the key thing is sooner is always better than later because it's cheaper when you get right. it when you're younger. It's uh, You may not be insurable at the older you get. Health, mm-hmm. may, health issues may uh, cause it to be rated or uninsurable altogether. So then that takes that option right off the table. 
But for, say, $100,000 of a tax liability, now we can go out to the market and shop for a $100,000 permanent policy. It could be a term to 100, a joint last-to-die policy, a universal life policy. There's a number of different options. And um, now a lot of times people say, well, I can't afford it, mm-hmm. right? We're, you know, we're in our late 60s now, we're in our 70s, it's too expensive. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's where we reach down to the next generation and we say, listen, we know this is an important, it's important to your mom and dad, but to the extent it's important to you guys as the children, the future heirs of the cottage, um, we've, we've put in place a, a policy to protect it so that that will carry on to the next generation, but yeah. it's going to cost mm-hmm. $300 a month. Mm-hmm. And so we want from each three of you, we want a hundred bucks each a month yeah. to be able to pay for this. And a lot of times that's, you know, the emotional connections are there and it's a valuable thing mm-hmm. in the sense that they are, they're prepared to do it. Yeah. So that is a very, that's a very viable solution. But again, the so- sooner is better than later in, in all of that for sure. Um, so I think that the principal residence exemption is the next thing that comes into play when you're talking about the vacation and vacation planning. Um, we have new reporting rules as of October last year uh, in terms of the 2016 tax returns. Anybody who sells their principal residence, it, there's a special form now that has yeah. to be provided and, and filled out. Um and the most important thing in the discussions I had with a client this week, and, and you start to begin the, to compare the increase in value of your city home versus your cottage. Right. Now, this has flip-flopped over the years in the sense that many years the cottage went up much faster mm-hmm. than the city home. And now we're seeing a reversal of that where what's happening in the GTA, property prices have gone up so quickly and rapidly and it's sort of spreading like a wave. You know, Mm -hmm. the latest I heard, all the property values in Guelph are starting to increase now. And Hamilton, of course, is seeing the increase and it's pushing out towards Dundas, Anka, everywhere. So um, the reality then is that it may be that there's actually less capital gain Mm -hmm. on your cottage than there is on your home here in the city. Right. And one thing cottages or cottagers have be owners have become always aware of and are pretty good at is keeping track of their improvements to the property. Mm-hmm. And this is what we call the adjusted cost base. So again, coming back to my example, if you paid a hundred thousand dollars for a property and it's worth five hundred thousand today, maybe over the course of the last twenty years you've put a hundred thousand dollars of improvements onto the property, mm-hmm. new roofs, new wiring, new, you know, kitchens, new. What uh, about a rebuild, Andy? A rebuild counts too, yeah. for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, docks and uh, docks are, are always an interesting question, but a docks is sort of a permanent structure in the sense that it should be the permanent like yeah. anything else. Um, but sweat equity doesn't count. Mm. So all of that, you know, you might get your products and buy all your, and do it yourself, but that labor doesn't count into the factor. Ah. Uh, and what was interesting too is, so in talking with my client said, you know, we, we did, we did some renovations like, you know, 18, 17 years ago. I pulled out the receipts cause we kept them. I can't read them. Yeah. The print, the, 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 <laughs> the ink, ink has, the ink has gone. Yeah. And so we got into a discussion. We don't know whether there's an x-ray machine or a certain kind of, uh, <laughs> yeah, really. maybe there's a, there's a docu, there's a process that you can actually Some kind sort of, of spy device. Spy device. Yeah. It's, an, you know, <laughs> disappearing and, ink. <laughs> in fact, I've had uh, some clients actually, what they've been doing of late, they're taking pictures of the receipts on their, on their phone. Yeah. And then they're keeping the receipts on a, on a virtual file. Yes. Yeah. 
hoping that they never fade. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but yes, the exact same situation. These, uh, you know, 25-year-old receipts, they, they become unreadable. And wow. uh, yeah, so we were actually having that conversation saying it's it's important to literally have a binder where you're keeping not only the paper copy, but you now need to keep an electronic copy in a mm-hmm. binder where, you know, because that's easy enough to get lost or destroyed in a fire yeah. and all of these things. So it's incredibly valuable to have this information. But what became apparent is that in her case, the capital gain on her home here in the city had actually is actually higher than what it was in the cottage. Mm-hmm. And so she said, but I've put all kinds of improvements into this house along the way too. <clears throat> so if I'm de- designating it as principal residence, you know, that's fine. I don't have to worry about the capital gain, but if it turns out flip flops the other way yeah. around, mm-hmm. then I needed to know what improvements I did on my home in the city. Mm-hmm. So the question was how many listeners that own a cottage and a city home are keeping track of all the improvements and the receipts that they've done on their home here in the city right. along the way. Right. And a lot of times people aren't mm-hmm. right. They're thinking about it in the cottage, but mm-hmm. they're not thinking about it when it comes to their city home. Mm-hmm. So it's just as important to have a parallel binder mm-hmm. where you're keeping track of all those in additions and improvements to your city home and the electronic copy, as well as uh, the same thing for your cottage as well. Hmm. So that principal residence exemption is going to be very valuable in terms of minimizing tax. And, um, you know, that that keeping records is going to ab- absolutely be critical. You don't need to designate what is a principal residence or isn't a principal residence until the time comes that you actually sell it. Okay. Really? No. Wow. So along the way, you can kind of, it's, you've got both properties. You mm-hmm. don't need to worry about that designation until the time comes when you sell it. If it's happening at death and now your executor and your financial planner and your tax professional is going to be looking at it and crunching through the numbers to help figure out which property should be designated as principal residence and yeah. which one should be your, uh, is going to be your, um, the, the investment property. Okay. Um, so I think that the, um, the, the planning with insurance is, is obviously key as far as one solution to this. Otherwise, you have to have funds set aside. The next question comes up, well, what about gifting during my lifetime? Can I do that? And is that something that makes sense? And this often creates a lot of problems because the one mistake that people think is that by gifting it, I'm going to, um, I'm going to escape paying any tax mm-hmm. on this property. And so if you gift the property, it's the same as if you died. There is what's called a deemed disposition. In other words, even though you haven't received anything for it, you're going to, it's going to be taxed as if you have sold it mm-hmm. at today's fair market value. And now the gain will be triggered and you will pay tax today. Now, Two things are uh, two things are bad about that. If yeah. you if you gift a, the cottage to somebody at zero, uh, or they paid a small amount or below fair market value, that's their new adjusted cost base. So if if the property was worth five hundred thousand and you said, well, I only paid a hundred thousand for it, you give me a hundred grand and I'm happy. We're done. Well, now they're going to pay tax on the four hundred thousand dollar of gain, right? Because they inherited it at. 100,000. And then you're going to be taxed on the 500,000 sale when you gift it. So you actually are going to pay twice. The tax is going to be paid twice, which is absolutely not a good situation, (laughs) obviously at all. Um, So gifting during your lifetime, I think the only time it may make sense is if, uh, if you're doing a a partial ownership is if the, if, if the amount of the capital gain, which is in the hands of the parents 
is going to be capped at the time of, of the, the gift. So in other words, I'm giving it to you at 500000 That's the price. Now I no longer have to worry about paying cap future capital gains. So right. they've transferred those future capital gains down to the kids. Um, and the final thing we just want to talk about too is um, the planning for multiple owners. In many cases, you've got several kids that are involved. And I think one of the strategies that I like about this is saying in order, if you agree to inherit this property, and you can put this in your will, if you're going to inherit this property, you have to agree to sign a co-ownership agreement. And the co-ownership agreement is great because at the time when people at your death, the property transfers to your kids. They all sign a co-ownership agreement. Everybody's happy in the sense they've got the property now. The years haven't gone by when so-and-so doesn't do a damn thing and somebody <laughs> else always leaves stuff and doesn't clean up after them. So the arguments happen afterwards and it's very difficult to create a co-ownership agreement after the fact right. when all of that starts to happen. So if it's done in advance, it gives you exact the exact outcomes in terms of how if somebody wants to get out of the property or if somebody has, if they have problems, everybody's already got the rules in place. Good point. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. 905-529-7165. That's 905-529-7165. You can call now. Leave a message. They will get back to you. And don't forget to check out the website at Andy and Don, all one word, andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. You can check out old shows there or ask a question via the listener inquiry button. We're talking about passing down your retirement, or sorry, your vacation properties. Yes, the cottage. And it's it must be, you know, springs in the air. Golf <laughs> courses are opening up and That's people it. are talking cottages, yep, yep. right? They all go hand Everywhere. in hand. Yep. And it's interesting. I had this exact same, situ- a similar situation, say, about uh, just in the last few couple months, mm-hmm. where somebody was passing down their cottage to, as it turns out, uh, a related person. In this case, a nephew. Mm-hmm. And it would make no difference if it was a nephew, son, uh, you know, another sibling. Right. It's 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 non arm's length transaction, and that means that it's not a stranger, more or less. Okay. And what they had done, which I which uh, you know I know. One thing you can do with any capital gain, if it's possible, you can spread a capital gain over five years. Hmm. So if you uh, sold something, you bought something for 100000 sold it for 200000 but the person didn't give you all the money up front and spread it over, say, 10 years, you know, 10000 uh, 20000 a year for the next 10 years, well, you can spread that just the gain portion, which would be 100000 over five years, hmm. even though you're being paid over 10, okay? So the maximum you can spread a capital gain over is five years. And the same applies to a cottage. So in this particular case, and it's interesting. And and that, yeah, and that assumes that you didn't get all the money right away. Right. Yes. You, you, literally, it's a future payments. Yeah, yeah, the future payments. And, and this, the same idea happened where all of a sudden their Hamilton property started being worth more. So we actually did have to work out which was the better one to use up as a principal residence. Right. Now, it did turn out um, the cottage was the better one to sell right now mm-hmm. and have the capital gain. And interesting enough, um, it was to a related person, but they don't actually have to receive the money. It has to be structured. They're getting paid one-fifth of the purchase price each year. Right. So it's January. They're getting one-fifth of the money. And as long as it's So stated, is this the nephew giving the money to... To the 
Ant. To the ant. Right. Okay. Okay. So they're spreading the purchase of the cottage <coughs> from them over the year? Is over that five years. Over, sorry, over five years. Five yep. equal okay. payments. Right. And uh, that way, the ant, in this case, can spread that capital gain that she would have to pay tax on right. over five years. Right. Now, the beautiful thing about this is quite often, it's people over 65 that are selling the cottages now. Mm-hmm. It's part of the estate plan. Right. They've had their fun. And, uh, you know, but they've got this great place in the family. Some of the family wants it, some doesn't, but whatever the case is, it's a great time to divest it. So you don't get a, a capital gain in the year of death. Right. So you get it right while you're alive. Right. So in this case, she is not only getting the capital gain spread over five years, because of spreading it over, she's, a, she's actually going to be able to receive her old age security without clawback mm, right. for all five years. Because her taxable income, or sorry, her net income, would be less than say about one hundred sixteen thousand, mm-hmm. and it kept her income under the seventy-five thousand, right. in which clawback starts. So she actually will get her OES for all five years. And the neat thing is, when you're dealing with a a non an arm's length person, a non arm's length person, or anybody for that matter, is as Andy had mentioned, it is deemed at market value. So no matter what. If it's a five hundred thousand yeah. dollar cottage, it doesn't matter what you receive. That's what it's worth when you sell it. Mm-hmm. They in that in a five hundred thousand example, it would be a hundred thousand a year, but it's actually going to be done in a forgivable loan. The aunt doesn't really want the money; she just wants to spread the tax bill. Mm-hmm. So she's going to have a forgivable loan every year for five years of a hundred thousand dollars in this example. Okay, mm-hmm. so she doesn't actually get the money. But the tax bill spread over five years. Now, if she dies before the five years is up, then the rest of the capital gain would be triggered at that time. Right. Okay. But in the meantime, it's very good planning to get this done now rather than the day you die. Because at that time, not only you got the capital gain. Um, one cap- one all at yeah, once. Yeah. The big capital gain then. But your other investments, they're taxed at that time. Right. If you have any RSPs or RIFs, they're all taxed at that time. And, and it's amazing how quickly your income can add up. Yeah. The next thing you know, you know you're paying 53.5% on a lot of income because mm-hmm. you're in that bracket. So that's one, one area is, is the spreading the capital gain over five years. Secondly, they, they, they did check this out. And there was a time where a husband could own one property and the wife could own the other. And they both could claim the principal residence. Mm. And this was a great strategy for quite a lot of people. Yeah, really. And uh, when was such, that? Such a great strategy that the government got rid of it in 1982. Yeah. Okay. However, it still is an effect as of 1982. The trick of that is that w- the one spouse, say the wife in this case, would own the house with not any with no joint ownership with her husband, and the cottage would be 100% owned by the husband. Mm-hmm and no joint ownership with the wife. They have to be singular owned. And in this case, it was not singular owned, so it had to go back to the V-Day of 1971. And that's when all investments, cottages, anything that has a capital gain was valued. It was 1971, December 31st, 71. So it didn't work out in this case, but for those listeners out there that did think they made those adjustments earlier on, that 1982 date still stands, hmm. and and that would be the, the the adjusted cost base of 1982 versus 1971. And finally, it, it seems like yesterday, but we used to have this <laughs> 1992, <laughs> 1992, 1994. It was on the yeah. 1994 tax return. 
was the capital gains exemption. I guess we're showing our age here, Andy. I know. Uh, that was 20... Not me. You go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> 23 years ago, uh, we had this... It was supposed to slowly rise your capital gains exemption to um, $500,000 um, with farmers, small businesses, and any capital gain at all. And they're going to do it in increments. Well, once they got to the 100000 mark, they stopped. <laughs> and then finally they said, we're getting rid of it. And for all you cottages owners out there, you have to file a, a part of your tax return saying that you inc you you now have added up to $100,000 of adjusted cost base to your cottage. Now you had to get it appraised at the time. And I know I had a situation recently where I, I actually asked the widow if they still had the 94 tax returns. And they did. And thankfully, all the documents were in the, about the cottage and the appraisal and what the new adjusted cost base would be as of 1994. Um, but the problem is, is you know, 23 years later, memories start to fade. And so do receipts. And next thing you know is people forgot they even did all this work to get it appraised. Oh, yeah. And they, they went through probably cost them maybe up towards $1,000 to get this done, and they forgot about it. Yeah. Now, if that's the case, and this all of a sudden happens to ring true, you can always amend a tax return or an estate tax return. But you'd have to go back, I believe I think you can go back up to five years on that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so double check with your accountant and check out that 1994 tax return. So as far as cottages go, great place to have some time on the mm -hmm. weekends. Summers are too short, but boy, you, you still, as much as you have to do the lawn, fix everything in sight, work on the dock, you also have to make sure all the tax stuff is in order too. Yeah, really. And, uh, but it's well worth it, of course. Right, Scott? As a of course it is, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. So on a different note, switching gears to <coughs> investments. Now, an inter interesting uh, report came out, and you're seeing probably you know, a fair bit of, call it noise, about you know fees and how they're affecting returns on investments right now. Mm -hmm. And there's certainly a couple commercials that are fantastic certainly making people take take notice of them yeah and i've always been you know the more transparent the better i have no issues with this uh, there are some areas that you might second guess how much they're telling the truth mm -hmm. but again fees are a drag on your returns no question so if you there was no fees on your investments then that investment would have a higher performance yeah okay Just cut and dry however interesting enough um dalbar who is an outside institution that simply measures what the actual client returns are. So it doesn't matter what the investment did. Okay, so if the investment did 10%, that's great. But what did the client actually get? Because what they do is they measure the fund flows. They measure how much money is going in, how much money is leaving the fund, and they find out what did the client actually get, the actual clients. And which is remarkably lower, considerably lower, than the returns of the fund. Mm -hmm. Because people are pulling money in and out at the wrong times. And we've talked about this before. But it, the other part, this, as of December 31st, 2016, so a very recent study that was in the investment executive, it covered a 15-year period between January 1st, 2001, December 31st, 2016, and the average active um, investor outperformed the passive investor for a period of more, in periods of more than five years. And what an active investor would be, would be one that owns, say, a mutual fund. 
where people are buying and selling the shares on your behalf. Mm -hmm. That's an active investor. A passive investor would be something that owns the index. Um, there's ETFs, exchange traded funds. There's iShares that own uh, something replicates the index. And there's certainly a, always been this kind of a tug of war, who, which performs better, the, uh, the low cost ETFs or, or, or iShares, if you will, or a mutual fund. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of interesting, it, it flops back and forth because during great times, we find one outperforms the other. During bad times, one, the other outperforms the other. But over longer periods of time, it turns out that the active investor, the mutual funds, have outperformed passive investing, such as the index. And it's, the actual return of the clients in funds was 4.04% over versus 2.85% over the index investors. So there's a about 1.2% difference in return mm -hmm. of the actual performance. It's kind of interesting actually that you're barely breaking, the clients are actually barely breaking even after inflation in both those cases, but particularly the index because they're, they're moving the money too often. Mm -hmm. They're not in it long enough. Right. And, uh, then they looked at it even for uh, 10 years. In shorter times, a five year, it turned out that the passive investor outperformed the active investor by a small amount. And even last year, a very, which was a very interesting year last year, um, active investors earned 6.73, um, sorry, and the, versus the um, passive investors, 9.38. Now, basically, in that particular case is they found that people were taking the money off the actual management of the funds were pulling money off and putting it in a cash and, and actually doing the wrong thing. The actual funds were doing the wrong thing that year because of things such as Brexit, um, Trump, and what would happen if he got elected. And in all cases, it was interesting. They were wrong in almost all fronts. Hmm. <laughs> um, they didn't get anything right. None of the experts got those predictions right. It would be basically like saying, and based on this, um, there's a very good chance the Leafs are going to win the Stanley Cup this year. Okay. If they can just get by Washington. <laughs> because every expert is saying they don't have a chance. Yeah. Well, there was no chance Brexit was going to happen, Trump was going to win, and all these other things were going to take place. So it's, it's absolutely astonishing how so many got it wrong, and the ones that just sat and passively just sat in the market ended up having a far better return. Now, it's interesting, if you hold it for a long period of time, the returns are generally quite good. And I just wanted to show you what the returns have been, um, say over oh, 15 years, 20 years, and the returns have been about 9%, okay, over the S&P 500. So a pretty good return. But if you just missed 50 days, five zero, you actually end up with a negative 1.8%. So you talk about 15 years. How many days is there in 15 years? Okay, that's a, that's a, <clears throat> a what, a, how many how months is that even? 180 I'm months. Get in my calculator, right? <laughs> okay. Yeah, you can work that out. <laughs> Don't look could. at me, boys. <laughs> You're the one. This is your gig, not mine. 5,475 <laughs> days. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Thanks, Andy. <laughs> wow. Right on the mark there. And so you have that many days, and yet you just miss 50 of them and you end up with a negative return. Mm -hmm. so that, that's 0.37% of them. Wow. <laughs> wow. 0.37. Oh. Yeah. Less than a third of a, almost a third of 1%. How many times have we said stick to the plan, right? Yeah, that's right. 
In fact, if you just missed 10 of the days, not even 50, 10 days out of 115 oh, years, okay, you just, you know, you just went on the swim. I don't think, you know, if Trump gets in, I don't want my money in the market. If you just said that uh, and you missed 10 days, the 10 best days, your return dropped in half mm -hmm. from 9% to about 5%. Just missing 10 days. So absolutely, you know, amazing how you have to have the discipline. And this is where having a financial planner is key because left, over, left to your <coughs> own devices, most people are, are more trigger happy to move things around. And this is probably one of the reasons anyway, why having a financial planner, people's net worths are at least double the ones that do not have a financial planner over the long haul. And it's, a, it's an interesting stat that they've gone through of all the people that deal with financial planners versus those that don't and their difference in net worth, regardless of their income. Hmm. Okay, regardless if they're making 150,000, 200,000 a year or 50,000 a year, it made a difference in all cases. There wasn't a case where it didn't make a difference. And a lot of it is we're not wired to make money. We honestly are. We, we are wired to run when, when it's fearful and, and aggressively move things when it's doing well. That greed and fear takes over. And uh, the last part that we should talk about in terms of, especially for retirees right now, is the bond challenge. How do you get some income? And I was looking at the Canadian government bond rates and of course, they're very low. They're, they're short of 2% right now in Canada. But what happened, I have this chart in front of me now. If you had bonds from 1955 to 1981, and that's a, there's a lot of years there. There's what, 26 years. You actually lost 3.88% per year, every year on mm. average, because of interest rates rising. Right. When interest rates fell from 1981 all the way to 2015, and they've continued, they leveled off last year the actual return on your investment from 81 to 2015 was 8.02%, 8, 8 mm -hmm. call it 8%. So minus four for 20 some odd years, and then plus eight for the next 30 years, and that's because interest rates have been falling. So again, just because you think you're being safe, you gotta be very careful with bonds. There's a lot of risk in, in government bonds, and you should be very aware how those, how you should have that mix in your portfolio. We are planning your financial future. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now, leave a message at 905-529-7165. And don't forget to check out their website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. Talking about income options here. Yes, and, and just carrying on with the, you know, the bonds, interest income on bonds or GICs if, and uh, also versus dividends. And you're starting to hear a lot more about dividend income in the, probably the last five or six years, probably because GICs uh, basically are pathetic in terms of rate of return. Mm -hmm. After, you know, they're already low, but then you have to pay tax on the interest at whatever tax bracket you're in. And, uh, you know, that's all. And then they don't beat inflation. Yeah. They don't, don't even beat inflation without tax. Mm -hmm. so, so if you took a look at, you know, using five-year GICs all the way through from 1997 until the end of 2016, okay? So you're, you're looking at a 20-year span and you put 100,000 in. 
So what would happen is the first five years at that time, because interest rates were about 4.3% on a five-year GIC at that time mm -hmm. in 1997. So you got $4,380 for the first five years. Well, then it dropped to 3530 for the next five years, then 2930 for the next five years. And then finally, in the last five years, it's been $1,850 a year. So as you're getting older, your income has literally dropped from 4,300 to 1850, less than half your income. Hmm. And inflation is actually going up. So the prices are going up, but your income keeps dropping. And that leaves a retiree no choice but to start cashing in their investments and then eroding principal. Yeah. And it's a slippery slope. Then you start eroding principal and then you have less interest. So then your money starts to erode and you'll end up with no money. And that's supposed to be the safe way. Okay. Hmm. So you safely know you're going to run hmm. out of money. Um, versus, At least you know. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, versus taking the risky way, if you will, and you go into, say, our investors group dividend fund. Very conservative. It is owning shares of utility companies and banks, not guaranteed. But again, the banks are one of the safe investments, safest investments in Canada, actually in the world. And utilities are extremely safe, such as, you know, pipelines and, and you know, Bell Canada, etc. Mm -hmm. So you stuck the exact same 100000 into that fund. And your dividend to start was thirty five seventy, so you started off with a little less than how you what the interest rates were back in ninety seven because you're going to get forty three hundred eighty dollars in GIC money versus thirty five seventy. Difference is, if you made less than say forty thousand a year, you'd pay no tax on the dividend income, versus you would pay about twenty percent tax on interest income. Mm -hmm. So if you take off the tax part, they're virtually the same. And you do have to look at the dividend tax credit is, a, is your friend right. and it will help you, uh, help you with that. So then, as time goes on, it's interesting, companies start to raise their dividends because their profits go up. So you're watching, as I'm looking through this chart here, the next year your income went from 3570 to 3670 to 3962. And by 2006, it had gone, it had gone all the way up to 5000 a year in dividends. And then by... 2009, when the crisis happened, uh, the financial crisis, it actually went up from 5,500 to 6,400 to 7,200. So your actual payments of income actually doubled from the period of 1997 to 2009. Mm -hmm. So in 12 years, your dividends have doubled and that's helping you keep up with inflation, okay? And as of now, as of last year, your dividend would have been $6,522. And over the course of the 20 years, you would have received $63,000 in interest income versus $112,000 in dividend income. Hmm. Almost double, okay? About a $50,000 difference between them and tax preferred, paying far less tax. So a great, a great addition to a person's portfolio has, is to have dividend income. And the other part about it it's a principal. You put 100000 into a GIC, and what's that 100000 worth 20 years later if you've taken all the interest out? 100000 Yeah. Hasn't changed. Because you, you pulled all the interest out, and you've just renewed the 100000 A dividend fund, is, or any kind of stock for that matter, that pays a dividend, you start off with the principal, and that principal goes up and down. And so your 100000 after the first year actually went up to 120000 the dividend fund had a really good year in, in, in 1997, but it dropped to 112000 by 1999. 
So there's some volatility with the principal. Okay. Right. So it will go up and down. And then it, it got up to 135. Um, interesting enough, it was up to 176 in 2007. But then, of course, we had that financial little disaster in 08 and went to 132. Mm-hmm. But again, you're still living off the dividends. Your dividends are rising. So as long as you don't kind of, you don't, you know, kill the chicken that lays a golden egg. Yeah. You're just taking the eggs out. It doesn't really matter about the chicken. Okay. Just, just keep taking the eggs out. Because by the end of 2016, the 100,000, even though you've pulled out all the dividends for 20 years, is now worth 190,000. So there's, the way you have to look at um, these type of investments is you have to look at a longer term frame. Mm-hmm. If you need the money in you know, three, four or five years, GICs are possibly the way to go or something with a very s- good safety factor because return means less to you in you know, shorter periods of time yeah. because you need to have the guarantee that that money is available for you in that short time. But if you're using this as a retirement ve- vehicle to give you an income for the rest of your life, then this is an absolute stalwart and one of our cornerstones of all the for- portfolios Andy and I create for clients f- to create them an income that is in, goes up in time, the dividends, and the principal goes up in time. So you get your income is, is uh, kind of goes up with inflation and the actual value of it goes up inflation. And I would actually kind of compare this to a rental property. The rental property pays you rent mm-hmm. and you're allowed to raise the rent over time. Right. But the house also goes up in value. Right. Or down in value. There are some fluctuations in housing too. Mm-hmm. But at the long run, houses also go, go up. The nice thing about this, there's no, no tenants. No, you don't have to be a landlord and you don't have to fix uh, chimney plumbing or anything else. We are planning your financial future. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call them now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. And don't forget to check out the website at andyanddon.com. You can check out old shows there or even ask a question via the listener inquiry. Button. We're talking about emergency funds this break. Yeah, the, and there's something that comes up all the time with our clients is that we always want to address what do you have set aside for emergency? Yeah. And as my clientele has matured over the years, what I've come to realize is that there's also the point where people might have too much in yeah. an emergency reserve, and we'll talk a little bit about that too. So really, the, what I've also realized is based on your age and your stage of life, your capacity to build an emergency fund is either it's much easier or it's very difficult. And I was just sharing the story off air about, uh, you know, my daughter needing a a car repair, you know, a $450 Mm -hmm. repair that wipes out her emergency fund. And now you're at ground zero and it feels (laughs) like it's deflating because you're now, you know, starting all over again. Um, But you know what? She's not alone because apparently, I was just like reading about a, um, a survey that was done in 2015 by Polera, a strategic insights firm. 44%, so we're getting close to half of Canadians, 44% of Canadians have less than $5,000 set aside for unexpected expenses. And 25% of working Canadians are living paycheck to paycheck with no emergency cash at all. Uh, And so if it sounds like you, you're probably kind of stressed out because building that that emergency fund, it's, it feels like an impossible task. How the heck do you actually do it and stick to it? And it's not easy. The first thing is thinking about, well, how much? What's reasonable? 
the rules of thumb here come into play and generally it's about three to six months of your take-home income, Mm -hmm. your after-tax income. And so an example is if you had a $90,000 a year income in Ontario, you're going to pay about $21,000 in tax. That means you got $69,000 left over. It's about $5,750 a month. Mm -hmm. So at the low end, you'd have around $17,000 of emergency reserve. Wow. At the high end, it could be as much as 34000 And uh, And the, the question is, I guess, is how do you do it? How do you get there and how do you build that up? I think the first thing, obviously, is starting with a target. So what is the amount that we need? And I think, again, based on stage of life, there are so many demands for our cash in, in, in terms of being able to pay for things, pay off debts, and et cetera, that that emergency reserve often ends up being a line of credit. Yeah. And I'm going to talk about that. I was going to ask you about that. I'm going to talk about that as well. Um, So the first thing, once you determine how much, and then you can look at, well, how much can I set aside on a monthly basis realistically? If it's $50 a month and you've got to get to $17,000, that's going to be a lot. But again, remember, if you're someone earning $90,000 a year, you're going to have you're going to have resources. You should be able to find that money to begin mm. to set it aside. Determine how much it is each month that you can set aside. Now you got to target how many months is it going to take me to get there and set up an authorized automatic payment to have this money taken out of your bank account and set aside into mm. a separate account altogether. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that too, is how to keep it separate so you don't tip, uh, dip into it. Um, number four, trim your unnecessary bills. So, We have discretionary items in our budget every month. It could be eating out, it could Mm -hmm. be takeout, it could be maybe you could carpool instead of taking the car all the time. Maybe it's um, uh, public transportation that you could be taking. Maybe there's a way to reduce your household costs, trimming back on your cable bill. You, if you put your mind to it, yeah. there are places where we can find money. Um, I used to joke about the change, your change that yeah. sits around on the top yeah. of your desk at the end of each day. Putting that aside into a jar is a great way to, to start to build it too. What not to do? Well, the line of credit, I'm going to call that the gateway credit drug. The line of credit is really, if you're relying on that for your emergency fund and constantly going to it, it quickly becomes uh, quickly becomes a situation where you may start to then, if you don't, if another emergency comes along, yeah. now it goes on to a credit card or now, you, so now you're actually getting into consumer debt, which has a really high interest rate associated with it. So building that discipline in to create the, uh, to create that, um, that emergency fund is so key. Um, the next thing is keeping it out of sight mm-hmm. and how do you keep it? How do you make it grow? One of my favorite things is what's called a cashable GIC. You can build that up in terms of being able to have it earn a high rate of interest right now, a cashable GIC, one and a quarter percent. You have to leave it in there for 90 days. After 90 days, you can cash it out anytime you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, Money market funds are good, even a high interest savings account, but separate and away from your regular banking. Okay. Otherwise, it's too easy to dip yeah. it in for the vacation or the extras that come along. From I need time an to emergency time. vacation. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, so I, I think that the, uh, 
you know, can you have too much? And now I've, as my clients have matured and over the years, maybe they had a bank account here, a trust account over here, a credit union account over here. And then we start to actually aggregate them together and find out, well, you know, you have $70,000 between Mm -hmm. all of your different deposit accounts, your checking, your savings, this, this bank, that credit union. And so I have to then pull them back and say, wait a second, here's what a normal emergency reserve should be. What is the comfort level you have? What is the level at which you feel comfortable knowing I've got that much available, I could go in and get the cash, I could go in and write a check, I could go in, and some people might say, well, it's $20,000 or it's $10,000, but you'll have a number in your head and that's a good comfort level. Mm. So for those of you, the other thing that I see problems with is as those accounts build up, they also create estate planning problems if you have too much in short-term accounts because the banks will lock that money up They'll demand probate of your will, which is going to mean more time and more money. Mm. So be very careful with your uh, emergency reserves. You don't want them to be too small, and you don't want them to be too big. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. And don't forget to check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. You can listen to old shows and ask a question there via the listener inquiry button. Thank you, gentlemen. We'll see Thanks, you next week. Thank you, Scott.